you're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hey, David. Hello, Will. And hello to all of our listeners back again for episode 16. Hello, listeners. So today we are doing another listener request. Yeah. Really cool one uh, that we actually have two requesters. Requestees? Requesters. Requesters. We are the requestees, I yes, think. For this subject, which is cephalopods. This is an episode entirely about invertebrates. Yep. What have we come to? Yes, it's we are going off the beam trail, but we are going to the best invertebrate, I believe, in Second my best. opinion. Second best class of invertebrates. <laughs> so we we're we're going to good stuff. Yeah, oh yeah. Except uh, that it's 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 very cool. Yes. Yeah, so this was requested by Hans from Facebook and Lucas on Twitter, but also my coworker. Uh, yeah. Who was one of the first ones to partially, you know, uh, lightly suggest anything back when we asked people which was better, snakes or crocs, to which Lucas responded, cephalopods. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, what's a cephalopod? <laughs> so, cephalopods, so that you all know, and we'll get into this in more detail, of course, after our upcoming news section. Indeed. Are a group of invertebrates nestled within the mollusks, mm-hmm. so alongside snails and clams and all of them, but they are by far the most intelligent invertebrate that include things like octopus, squid, cuttlefish, and nautilus, which are the four main extant modern groups. More on that in a bit. Indeed. So on to our news. What does the news have for us today? The news... Hey, I'll start. That's a good idea. So we're going to start... The first news piece is one that I... It's funny because this dropped the day after the last episode was released. Yeah, it did. So this is like three weeks old by the time this episode comes out, but I I cannot not talk about it. The description of a dinosaur that is being touted across the headlines as the largest dinosaur of all time. Whoa. I'm so glad you know that theme. It's a good theme. Back in 2013 or so, a sauropod dinosaur, long neck, long tail, was discovered on a ranch in Argentina. Tons of bones, multiple individuals of the animal, noticeably enormous. They grow Very big, big deal. Last year, early 2016, it went up on display at the Museum of Natural History in New York City. It is one of the largest dinosaurs on display in any museum in the world, and it went up under the dramatic title of the titanosaur titanosaurs are a group of sauropods that this animal belongs to the reason that it went up called the titanosaur is because it didn't have a name it had not been actually described scientifically yet it wasn't the only one yes there are like (laughs) there's tons of titanosaurs This this is the one that doesn't have a name otherwise they told someone told them that after the fact Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, I would say, actually, it's funny because I would visit that, I would hear people talk about that exhibit, mm-hmm. and they would say, oh, this is called Titanosaurus. I'm like, no, no, it's not. Mm-mm. It's 
Anyway, now it has a name. After uh, spending months in the peer review process, the first official description of this new specimen, this new species, has been released, which means it not only has a name, but some more details about it. It is officially Patagotitan Majorum. Uh, Patagotitan is named after the fact that it comes from the Patagonian region, and it is enormous. And the species epithet, Majorum, actually is an, in honor of the family that owns the ranch, the Mayo family. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that allow because they, they, they let these people dig up literal tons of dinosaur bone off their land, which mm-hmm. is very, very nice. Patagotitan comes from the Cretaceous about 100 million years ago. It is notable for two main reasons. Number one, there are a couple hundred bones known from six different individuals all buried in the same place. Oh, wow. And together, they comprise what looks like more than half of the skeleton, an enormous amount of the skeleton of this animal. Not only is that rare for dinosaurs, you know, we've talked about that before, that, you know, most dinosaur fossils are bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. It's rare to have a, a big chunk of the skeleton to begin with, it is unheard of to have that much of the skeleton of a giant sauropod. Yeah. This is one of the most complete sauropods known, and it is by far the most complete, really, really big sauropod. Mm-hmm. The other reason that it's notable is that it is really, really, really big. Typically, when you ask people the questions, you know, what's the biggest dinosaur? Uh, they will tell you Argentinosaurus. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might mention something like Puertosaurus. Yeah, the, the, there's this series of titanosaurs from down in, in South America that get to 100, 110, 120 feet long. Yeah. So we estimate. Yeah, they, they have an exhibit at Fernbank Natural History Museum, which is my childhood museum mm-hmm. back in Georgia, just just north of Atlanta. And they have an exhibit of Giants of the Mesozoic, and it has a Giganotosaurus and an Argentinosaurus. Uh, yeah. And a number of large uh pterosaurs flying above and it's that was their big thing is this is the biggest predator we know of right now this is the biggest sauropod we know of right now and boom but of course argentinosaurus is known from very very little material Mm -hmm. uh, especially compared to its enormous body size patagotitan uh being known so well means that we can get a really good estimate of its total size and a really good estimate of its weight Mm mm-hmm which has been sort of all the rage so far. So the new paper came out in Proceedings of the Royal Society B by Carbaido et al. And because there's so much of the skeleton, they were able to use a couple different methods to estimate the weight of the animal. Uh, Usually when you estimate weight, you use the humerus and the femur, because those are the major weight-bearing bones. Uh, They were also able to do a volumetric uh, analysis, basically estimating the volume that this animal took up and then estimate, you know, figuring out weight from there. Oh, that's cool. They estimated its weight to be in the range, generally in the range of about 60 to 80 tons. So a bit. A little bit big. For comparison, not only is that six to eight times the size of the largest animal on land today, Mm -hmm. it's also about, reportedly, twice the size of estimates for Apatosaurus and Brachiosaurus. This was a, this is huge. Wow. But estimating size is 
hugely controversial. Mm-hmm. There's a ton we don't know. <laughs> a lot we don't know about, you know, we don't soft tissue and muscle and guts, and, and that's really hard to estimate the weight of. So that's why the error bars, like, I think the error bar they reported is plus or minus 17 tons. <laughs> which is plus or minus two elephants. <laughs> like, that's... That's quite a range. It's like a recipe that says a pinch of salt. It's like, yeah, you know, just one or two elephants seasoned to taste. <laughs> yeah. So, there, you know, whether or not the, the weight estimate is accurate, that's why it's such a wide range. Yeah. But even the lowest bound, like the lowest estimate that they got from their methods is still way heavier than other sauropods that we've tried to measure. Which is impressive. Very impressive, very cool. Is it the largest dinosaur of all time? Well, we don't know what's still out there to find. Mm-hmm. Is it the largest dinosaur known as... You know, I, 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 oftentimes you can blame stuff like that on headlines. Mm-hmm. But the authors say that. Yes. Like, they, they actually say this is the largest known dinosaur. And technically, it, it seems to resolve the largest numbers when they examine it. Yes. But... As a, a few other paleontologists have pointed out, there are other, you know, Argentinosaurus and Puertosaurus look to be a pretty much the same size. Yeah. We just don't have as much of them. It's well, That's always an issue whenever, just before the podcast, we were talking about animal speeds. And this falls in that category to where trying to put a quantitative measurement on an animal is mm-hmm. the same way as saying, well, how long are human noses? <laughs> depends yeah. on who you're related to because yeah. you know of course my mind my example go-to is always crocs the two biggest crocs are the nile croc and the indo-pacific or saltwater croc and the indo-pacific is going to always be cited as the largest reptile but that's because it has broken the records it, it holds the record as the largest right. confirmed crocodile in modern day but on average if you were to put a nile and a saltwater next to each other they're going to be comparable size. Like they both can reach 20 feet. It's just yeah. the saltwater has been found at the largest sizes more often. Well, it's like when people argue about theropod size, mm-hmm. and like T-Rex or Giganotosaurus or Spinosaurus. And if yes, there's variation sort of here and there, but they're the same size. Like they, exactly. those are the same sized animal uh, for all intents and purposes. And on average, you can't take the extremes as being, you know, they have a potential size limit. That doesn't mean T-Rex full-grown was always at its max size. Most of the time, yeah. they're going to reach below that by a significant margin. And it, you know, has, did it just eat? Yeah. Because then it's going to be heavier. Yep. So, it, you know, it, it, trying to label things the biggest ever is iffy. It's it's the Guinness World Record mindset, which is fun. Yeah. And I get, you know, it's it's, it's oh, something yeah. that's it's interesting, a, it's a but it's, it can be misleading when you put too much uh, weight on it. (laughs) (laughs) And in this case, I think it really distracts from how cool a specimen this is. Yeah. If you have not, dear listener, and you have the opportunity to do so, go to the Museum of Natural History in New York City and stand next to this skeleton. (laughs) It is ridiculous. It's, It's so big. I don't have words to describe how big this... It's huge. Go stand next to it. It's daunting. It's fantastic. And now it has a name. And now it has a description. And because it's so complete, I'm sure we'll be learning stuff from it 
for a long, long, long time. It's it really is when you get to stand next to those big reconstructions. It's humbling to where how did you move around above water? <laughs> so on the note of dinosaurs, I'm gonna scale it down just a little, just a bit, and talk about a more recent study of a little oddball dinosaur known as Chileosaurus Diego Sorinzi or Sorizzi. This is another one that's been making a couple of headlines because it's been using the term in a lot of the articles of missing link, which yeah. always will catch attention. But this is a, a very interesting dinosaur specimen. So basically, this was a specimen that was described in 2015. It's about three meters long. It's from Chile. And it would be found around the upper Jurassic about 145 million years ago. It's interesting because it seems to have a mixture of features when first looked at. It kind of yeah. has a theropod, a predatory dinosaur-like body overall, but then yet it has these herbivorous features. Yeah, it's long been a confusing yeah. species. It has blunted teeth and shares some other physical features with non-theropod dinosaurs, so it was it was confusing. They originally put it among theropods just as an oddball theropod. Mm-hmm. Recently, what these news articles are about is that uh, Matthew Barron and Paul Barrett did a new study on it mm-hmm. that reclassified this dinosaur. And so yes. a little background on these two authors. We had a But We Digress a little while back about one of their recent studies over Ornithoscelidia. Yeah, their rearrangement of the dinosaur family tree. Indeed. And so these are two who re- you know, looked at the dinosaur family tree with relation to some very early dinosaurs and looking at the features, reorganize it so that instead of you having the, the split between the the Ornithischia and the Saurischia branches of dinosaurs separating the you know, most of the big herbivores and the theropods being the mm-hmm. two big branches, they've now been regrouped so that those two are next to each other and separate from sauropods. Right. With that in mind, mm-hmm. so to say, looking at this new dinosaur, they found a position in this new tree for it that seems to fit things that they were, you know, or fit fit things that they saw among other dinosaurs that made that new tree. It's it's a very interesting study. So, this is in biology letters and they looked at about 450 characteristics. So they did a massive analysis of this dinosaur. Basically what they found was that it has many features to be placed within the Ornithischia. This one of the main ones that included is that quote-unquote, bird-like hip, the reversed Mm -hmm. hip. And that, along with other features, the lack of curvature in the teeth and things like that, allowed them to place it at the base of that group soon after the split from, you know, what with their new organization, the split from the theropods. So it's it has that mix of theropod-like features and ornithischian-like features. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it's from around that time where those two groups were presumably just splitting apart and and diversifying from each other. Exactly. And so this is really interesting. Uh, One of the things is that it has that hip, which is believed to partially be an adaptation for a bigger gut to handle plants. Yes. We see it in some uh, later theropods that turned to herbivory. Exactly. 
and it has the blunt teeth, but it does not show definite evidence for the characteristic beak that you see on many of the ceratopsians and stegosaurs and all of those. Mm -hmm. It has it. It could potentially have partial one. If you read the paper, they say it shows that it might be able to have an upper one. Doesn't seem yeah. to have a lower one, but it does not retain the beak like it, you know, Triceratops would in its skull. Yeah, which shows that. Uh, as the one of them was quoted saying, the gut evolved first and the jaws evolved later. Basically that it started eating plants before it had really specialized its mouth to do so, meaning that this one was very possibly a, more of an omnivore or shifting from, you know, th from carnivory to omnivory to herbivory. Yeah. Which is interesting. It, it, it tells them a bit about the evolution of these other groups and the early acquiring of these traits because... Beforehand, they didn't have specimens that showed where these traits originated. Yeah, it's it's all part of that, as we've discussed a bunch of times, trying to figure out the earliest stages of any group where you, by definition, don't have a lot of information, don't have a lot of fossil remains, trying to piece together the order that different things happened in and, and where the relationships are. Once again, this is within their new family tree, which... Is, is something that I'm sure many dinosaur researchers are still looking at and debating. Oh, yeah. And I, I know that I, I read that earlier research also had fa found traits that seemed to be similar to the sauropod lineage in this animal. Yeah. So, so I'm sure there's still going to be some discussion about where exactly this gets placed. There are chapters yet to come, but yes. it's a very interesting little dinosaur. Yeah, it's been all over the internet lately. Yes. Uh the 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 artworks for it are very cute, so that that doesn't hurt. It's <laughs> it's multimedia attention. Yes it is. <laughs> so, uh forget dinosaurs. What? My in fact, my next article doesn't even have fossils in it. What? It doesn't even have any living organisms in it. Are you on the right podcast? I I am now. I <laughs> I make this podcast. This is my podcast. <laughs> this podcast is whatever I say it is. <laughs> It's not even a published study. <laughs> so this is the report of the discovery of some really, really old ice, mm -hmm. uh, which is very exciting for reasons you'll learn here in just a second. This is a report presented at a, a recent geochemical society conference in Paris by Eugene Yan et al. of an ice core from Antarctica dating back Roughly 2.7 million years. Wow. Now, let's put that in the context. Ice cores are super important for understanding the history of especially climatic change mm -hmm. on our planet. Because uh, not only, you, you know, you learn about ice formation, but when ice forms, it can trap little air bubbles. Yes. And they're isolated, which, mean, isolated, <laughs> which <laughs> means that they contain prehistoric remnants of the atmosphere. Yes. So they can tell you about things like levels of carbon dioxide, uh, you know, proxies for temperatures and stuff like that. We can go back pretty dang far with ice cores. What you do is you go to Antarctica or you go to Greenland, which are places where snowfalls in the summer or snowfalls in the winter melts mostly but not entirely in the summer. Mm -hmm. And in those areas, the snow is building up layer by layer leaves a little layer that gets compacted down in, in, in future years, 
and you drill through it, and just like tree rings, you count the layers, mm-hmm. which are laid down every year. You go one, two, three, four, five, three hundred thousand. And those can take you back quite far. In fact, the oldest ice cores using this method go back to about 800,000 years ago, which is not quite halfway to the beginning of the Pleistocene, yeah. the sort of epoch of the Ice Age. But you don't find ice cores going back much farther than that. In fact, ever farther than that by doing that. So what this group did was they went to places in Antarctica, which are called blue ice areas, mm-hmm. where the ice, you know, glacial movement is pushing up older ice and eroding away younger ice. So you can get access to older ice, but you can't count the layers to figure out how old it is. Yeah. But they found that they can get trace amounts of potassium and argon to radiometrically date these ice layers. Uh, More on dating in episode 12. Go check it out. And so they drilled a bunch of cores and they were pulling them out of this area and they dated a few samples, at least one sample, a few samples, to roughly 2.7 million years ago. Which is not only way older than the next oldest ice samples we've gotten, but 2.7 million years ago is right at the beginning of the Pleistocene. Which means this is our first window into the atmosphere of what the world was like when the Ice Age cycles started. That's cool. And they've already gotten some reconstructions of what the carbon dioxide levels look like and uh, potential proxies for atmosphere and ocean temperatures. Uh, this isn't, I don't believe this is officially published yet, so there, there will be more to come on this. But it's basically, this is presenting the opportunity for us to learn stuff that was previously completely out of our grasp. That's really cool. Like the, the opportunities for comparison and projecting with future climates and current climates is really important when it comes to this kind of information. Yeah, and their uh, CO2 reconstruction puts it at significantly lower than today, uh, even before the Ice Ages started. Interesting. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah, so this will this will really help us to put together the picture of how, what the world was doing when the Ice Ages kicked off. Yeah, what, what yeah, and that, that can also lead to us, uh, what can really cause these global changes. Indeed. Because that's, climate's a hard thing to map out when things suddenly change, much like when we were talking about extinctions, it's hard to know what's causing the change and what's reacting to the change. Yeah. It, climate is, is tough because it's global. Mm-hmm. And so and you're not having... so many factors. In everything all. going up to 70 degrees. Everything is raising by an average of, you know, so on and so on. But it's deserts are still hot. Arctic is still cold. So yeah. it's all still different from spot to spot. That's very cool. Indeed it is. So look forward to more from them. So my next article, we're going back to the Jurassic, but still not going to talk about dinosaurs anymore. We're going to talk about better archosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to talk about a crocodilomorph. Of course we are. Yeah. I, it's Every time it pops up, it is my duty. <laughs> so there's a new... Well, not even... Actually, not a new specimen. A new name for an old specimen that had been misidentified. 
Cool. Uh, which is always kind of neat. There's a whole subculture within paleontology of kind of collection diving, of going through collections and oh, finding yeah. specimens that just never made it to the research part. And mm-hmm. new species are found that are 50 years old very often, <laughs> surprisingly. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, a, a lot of times things are dug up by people who don't know what they are, and so they make a guess, they send it to the museum, and then it takes a while for somebody to get to it. Yeah, exactly. And so it's it's very cool stuff. This, not quite to that, ex- you know, to that extreme, but this is one of those cases. Mm-hmm. So this is by uh, Dr. Michaela Johnson. And it's published in the Zoological Journal of Linnaean Society, mm-hmm. and of the Linnaean Society, and yes. this is about a teleosaur, which is group within the thylacosuchids within crocodiliforms, which are the sea crocs, the sea crocs, the marine crocodiles. Yeah, these are the ones that still have legs. Uh, the metarynchids were the ones that had started developing flippers and fluked tails weird so these Crocs are still are weird listen to episode two yes now this one was discovered in the uh early 20th century from a clay deposit in peterborough cambridgeshire uh uk <laughs> not to make fun of uh, uk names but I, it's like these sound like four names put together um <laughs> <laughs> probably are but it was found in a clay pit there when it was found it was actually grouped with other sea crocs and put in collections uh, in the museum there at Cambridgeshire and sat there for a while until they stumbled upon it and realized that it didn't actually fit with the other fossils it was grouped with. Hmm. So they did a, a full description of the fossil material and were able to rename it and replace it within the teleosaurs. And it now has the name Lemisuchus obtusidens. Yeah. Which means Lemmy's blunt-toothed crocodile. Yes. Because Lemmy is the name of Lemmy Killmister. Killmeister? Killmister. I don't know. I, I don't listen to music because this is the front, band, front man for the <laughs> band Motorhead. <laughs> <laughs> That's At least he was. Yes. And this is who the crocodile is named after. Because paleontologists love their pop culture references. Yep. And so, this it's fun thing, fun name. Uh, cool specimen as well. So this was a six meter long. Yeah, 20 feet. Oh, yeah, just about 20 feet long with a three foot skull. Mm-hmm. Big, you know, so that's, that's getting to the largest size that we have today. Yeah. Was a marine crocodile, uh, crocodilian. That or crocodile morph, they keep calling it crocodile in their article, and I always end up using their terms. Yeah, around about 164 million years ago, Middle Jurassic to early Cretaceous is when it seems to have been around into modern Europe, is where it's been found, and it would have been around the coast of the Tethys Sea. So it was a coastal predator and would have been one of the largest, but as the blunt toothed aspect of it name says it has fairly rounded teeth which makes them think it was going for very robust food yeah what they call shells and stuff durophagus yep hard 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 eating is what durophagus officially means but hard you know crushing shells and bones and things and so it was very likely going after shells but also uh turtles which is Mm -hmm. common in today's crocodilians 
Now, the, a lot of the articles talk about it having a more robust snout. So it, it still has a very narrow snout by crocodilian standards. It's Yeah. But compared to other teleosaurs, they have even more narrow and seemingly fragile snouts. So this is a, a bigger one, robust by their standards. Yeah, beefy and, and strong, right? Built, built for... Mm-hmm crunching tough things as opposed yeah. to catching you know fish and stuff which are slippery and easy with sharp little teeth uh yes so yeah cool, cool marine stuff. croc it's a funnel that's another fun example and we talked about this a little bit in episode 10 on taxonomy you know this thing was sitting around as steniosaurus mm-hmm. for a long time and then until these these folks came in and you know because a lot of that stuff was known as like yeah it's a robust jawed crocodilomorph they put it in this genus mm-hmm. and every now and then people come along and go no oh, that's it turns out that's not where it belongs it yeah. goes somewhere else and we're like, gradually refining and correcting our views over time it's, it would be the same if we were given a, a pile of horses and horse relative fossils and asked to group them <laughs> by relation we would end up putting things next to each other because that's not our specialty Yes. And then someone who knew horses would come along and go, whoa, 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 not in the right spot. Yeah, and that goes, you know, the the people that named this, and I don't know the full history of it, but you might be a crocodilomorph expert in the early 1900s, but a hundred years later, someone's going to, you know, we have a much, much more complete picture, and that allows us to go back and say, okay, let's, we can reframe this specimen. Which is cool. cool I like that aspect of paleontology, that we can discover stuff that we've already discovered. Yes, there's a lot of rediscovery that goes on. And that's neat. So that concludes today's news. And that's it. Now over to the octopus desk. Yeah, squishy, suction cuppy, cool creatures. Yes. Hey, Will, tell yeah. us about cephalopods. <laughs> well, it's convenient that you ask. So cephalopods, or cephalopoda, which mm-hmm. means headfoot. Yes, uh, we have does. a lot of funny named, funny meaning <laughs> names today. Is a really cool group of invertebrates. Uh, so first, we're going to go over what they are and what we have today. Yes, and then and then we'll get into the good stuff. Oh, we're gonna yeah. There's a the lot record to get. And then into. we'll talk about one percent of one percent of one percent of what there is to say about the fossil record of. Cephalopods. They're a cool group. So, <laughs> cephalopods, as I said, are mollusks. Uh, that puts them with all the other shelled invertebrates of snails, clams. Your, you know, bivalves are going to be all your clams and oysters, and then monovalves are are going to be the single shelled. So, cephalopods fall within mollusks, but they are a, a particularly specialized group. These are your octopus, your squid, your cuttlefish, and your nautiloids. Yeah, tentacly things. All of the things you think about having, and we're going to actually get into that term, because there is a specific term for tentacles. That's true. I, I What I just said was wrong. <laughs> uh, so we will get into that, but that will be later. They are the Cthulhu-mouthed sea creatures. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> That's the, the, the least technical ones. way that covers it all. They are very popular for... Things like that, actually, for Cthulhu and aliens, because they are by far the most intelligent invertebrate on the planet. Mm-hmm. And that's not saying much when you're comparing that to 
you know, worms and snails and clams and all insects and all that good stuff. But when we're saying intelligent, they actually can compete with the intelligence levels of things like crows and many primates. Oh yeah, They're, these are very brainy little creatures. Which makes them very alien, because as we'll get into, they have been separate from our evolutionary path for millions and millions, hundreds of millions of years. Oh yeah. Which, as I say at the aquarium, is about as close as we're ever going to get to meeting an intelligent alien life form, <laughs> is these things. Yeah. Which is why they're my favorite sea creature. So, to break down these groups, when it comes to their relation to one another, mm -hmm. cephalopods have two main groups that they branch into. The nautiloids, which contain all modern nautilus species, and there's only... All the nautilus species. And there's not many. <laughs> yeah. And the coleoids, which contain all the rest. The squids, the octopus, the cuttlefish, and all of their weird cousins. Yeah. Because there are others that are just much more rare or live in places we don't typically go. Yes. Uh, within the coleoids, you get the split between the decabrachia, mm -hmm. which are your tin-armed, yep. meaning the squids and the cuttlefish, and one other weird squid that we'll get to. And then the... Now, there, I found two terms for this. It's either the octopodiforms or the vampyropoda. Yeah, taxonomy. Yeah. Names are names shift around a bunch. Basically, this is your octopuses and the vampire squids. Yes, vampire squids, which are technically more octopus than yeah. squid, because they have eight uh, arms. It gets weird. So the main split between this is you have your eight-arm group and your ten-arm group. But when we use the word arm, I know a lot of you are going, you mean tentacles. Because mm. there is a distinction between these two body parts, which is yeah, important is. for these relations. Arms are what octopus have. Yes. Octopus have eight arms and nothing else. They have long, squishy appendages with suction cups all over them, from mm -hmm. base to, in most cases, all the way to the tip, except for the one that they use to carry sperm. Yes. Squids have eight arms as well, and then two tentacles. Yeah, those long ones with, like, the paddle ends. What they call clubs. Yeah, you can't see me, but I'm making a very squid-like yes, motion. Yes, he's doing, he, and he's he's doing the uh the um, this the set animation that he would be doing in the Pokedex. Uh. <laughs> yes, I'm <laughs> just the repeated I'm just waving, waving my arms in a in a rhythmic. If you tapped uh, him on Pokemon Go, he would. Yes, in um, a repetitive task. <laughs> so these tentacles are typically feeding apparatus. They're the one they can be yeah. retracted, which is different than arms. Mm -hmm. And they have the suction cups just on the end, but they can also have claws. Yeah, little hooks. Oh, the giant squids actually have rotating hooks that are on pivots, <laughs> so that no matter which way the prey runs, the hooks will swivel and catch it. And they're like the size of tiger claws. <laughs> so they're recurved in every direction. Yes. <laughs> The first signs we had of those were these scars on the face of sperm whales that were yep. caught during whaling whalers <laughs> from the battles that happened below the sea. It's a cool place down there. Man. So, so we have the octopus group, the squid cuttlefish group. Yes. And there's lots of cool stuff in here. Octopuses are what you typically think of being the squishy-bodied, 
things that live, typically live at the bottoms of the you know ocean and coastal areas. Mm-hmm. Now, I, there for a second, I want to cover this subject because it comes up almost every time this animal's mentioned. I did say octopuses. Yes. <laughs> there is, there are rules when it comes to pluralization of words. Mm-hmm. So octopus is a Latin term from ancient Greece. Yes. <laughs> In English, that pluralizes to octopuses. Yes. In ancient Greek, plural could be octopodes, which yep. historically could be acceptable. Octopi is misunderstanding that the us is that the origin of the us and octopus is a Latin one, and it's it's not. It's different source, so it's it's not octopi. Ah. It's octopuses or octopodes. It it depends on if you want to be English about it, or if you want to be Greek about it, or if you want to be retroactively Latin about it. Exactly. And the octopi does show up in certain dictionaries. So they all three yeah. could be used. I typically go with octopuses because it's the, it's the most straightforward. It's, you're just yeah. adding two letters. I'm going to go with octopodes. Uh, it's more fun. This episode just to be contrarian. I, that one is more fun. Octopodes sounds more fun. See, for me, that one always sounds like I'm talking about eight podes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so these are your... Squishy-armed and big-headed animals. Mm -hmm. Very cool, very smart. They're by far one of the smartest out of the cephalopods Yeah, is the octopus. And they're very weird animals. To just give you an idea really quick, because this is a thing that often gets misinterpreted, the big, bulgy back-of-the-head, quote-unquote, on the Mm -hmm. octopus, that's the body. That's where all the organs are. Yeah. The brain is actually below the eyes and wraps around the neck and branches out into the arms. So the thing you think of as the back of their head leading up to the front of their face is actually the back of the body. Interesting. Yeah, all cephalopods have that body structure where it's the head and body, which are one unit, Mm -hmm. with all the organs and stuff in it, and then the arms, which are basically the feet... They're mm-hmm. the equivalent of the, the snail foot. Exactly. That is as the, the base of the body. And the arms encircle the mouth, which, which has is a beak in it. Like a parrot beak. <laughs> and that's true across all cephalopods. Yes. Which is all a really cool All cephalopods have that structure. They're all carnivores, which mm-hmm. is very cool. And some of them, like almost all octopus, uh, all of the octopodes, all the octopedides... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> some, some cuttlefish, as well as a variety of others, are venomous. Yeah. Which is, why yep. not? Of course. Because they live in the ocean, and the ocean is a terrible, terrible place to be. Oh, it's terrifying down there. <laughs> and they basically have a little gland that they drool venom across their beak into the bites of their prey that quickly paralyzes them. Because they are a squishy, squishy animal, and many of them love eating things like crabs, which have not-so-squishy, very strong claws. Yeah. And so you need to neutralize them quite fast. Having those arms also means that octopodes, as well as the other uh, cephalopods with the arms, are one of the few groups of animals that are able to pull apart their prey <laughs> Yes, nice and easily so that they can more readily devour them. And 
we could do a whole episode on uh, cephalopod intelligence and all of the cool aspects of it and why it's different from ours and all that stuff, but oh, we yeah. have other things to go over. But they look up any video of smart octopus and you can find them opening jars and solving tests and learning from watching other octopus. These are not oh, social yeah. creatures, but they can watch another octopus solve a puzzle and they will then be able to solve it themselves. Yeah, very, very cool cool animals uh the vampire squid as well as a couple of other weird octopus are an off group of that they mm-hmm. have these cilia these little like antennae down the arms next to the suction cups uh yeah. this is where the dumbo octopus falls into this is the serena of the octopus and in serena are all the other typical uh octopodes that you think of all right vampire squid has that as well but they also have the reason that they are on the weird squid barrier is because they do have tin arms, but two have been reduced to sensory filaments. Very oh, long, thin antennae type things. So they effectively only have eight, and they are reduced those down. So you get some weird stuff. Cool. Yeah. Now the squids, cuttlefish, are your more torpedo-shaped. They also have a more rigid structure. We'll get into that. Mm-hmm. When we go into the fossil stuff. Yeah. They're both much more fast-moving swimmers, while the octopus is more of a... They can do jet propulsion. They all have the ability through their funnel, which yep. is also the opening to the in, their insides. That's where they poop and mate from and all that good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> as well as jet propulsion. It's it's an all-purpose hole. It, is, that, it makes our... Clo- like, the tetrapod cloaca look embarrassing. Um, <laughs> what are you guys even doing with that? Clip? Yeah. So okay, you can you can go to the bathroom and you can mate with that. Can you? Why don't you also fly with it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> side note: They only have one, even though cartoons love to draw them with two on the sides, like ears. It's one of my pet peeves. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's oof. That was the one thing about Finding Dory <laughs> that kept bothering me the entire movie. Hank had two funnels, and it's you have. Too, you have missing a leg and you have too many funnels. You're all off. <laughs> One of his legs was adapted into a second funnel. <laughs> Why not two? <laughs> so these are your more fast-moving. They tend to jet around. The cuttlefish are hoverers. Uh, mm-hmm. Squids are very fast, active predators, which yes, all of them are active predators, but squid are able to like chase their prey and outmaneuver yeah. and all that good stuff. Uh, cuttlefish are masters of the camouflage. All cephalopods have this ability to change their skin's color through chromatophores. Yeah, most at least most. I think the uh, the earlier groups. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I don't think Nautilus do it. Uh, yeah, actually, that's a good point. I did not see whether uh they did or not, but all of I the coleoids all the coleoids do. Yeah, do and 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 Mike like when people talk about color changing in animals. The go-to example is always the chameleon, mm-hmm. which is an amateur. Yes. Amateur hour in the chameleon zone. A lot of their color changes are in reaction to temperature and, like, mating rituals and yeah. stuff like that. And they're they're detailed and they're fast for a vertebrate. Mm-hmm. But my goodness, go look at pictures, uh, videos of, ca- of color changing in cephalopods and the biggest difference is that the cephalopod is true active camouflage they are actually yes looking at their surroundings they are colorblind and matching yes. <laughs> their yeah. color 
There has I've seen videos of um I think it was cuttlefish. Mm-hmm. It was either I think it was cuttlefish who will be in a mating display. Yeah. And if there's a a potential mate on one side and a rival on the other side, they'll half and half. They will s- swim in between them and show the bright white mating display on one half of their body to the female and the bright red anger display on the other side of the body to yep. the male. Which is, it's it's such an incredible level of detail for camouflage. Some of them even change the texture mm-hmm. of their skin to camouflage in with corals and rocks and stuff. Cuttlefish are really the masters of this because they've not only taken it to a uh, camouflage a whole nother level, but they are also social. Yeah. Which is not necessarily the case with uh, many cephalopods. And so mm-hmm. they use it for the social displays. I saw a thing about them. Uh, this is just another cool thing that they can do, but uh, not so much of the social. They have evidently been documented to be able to partially match background colors in the dark. Oh, yeah. yeah. They, we don't know how yeah. they do it. Like, this is literally, we don't know what they're <laughs> using to choose their colors when they're hiding. They're doing yeah. something that we can't detect yet. <laughs> And it's crazy. They're also famous for doing the sort of active changing, mm-hmm. like light shows, yes, where they'll where do they... like the hypnotize. Yeah, they boom, flash. Boom. They'll make stripes move down their body. Yep. Cuttlefish. Cuttlefish. <laughs> and <laughs> these are uh, very cool. There's another group within the uh, Decabrachia with the squids and the cuttlefish called mm-hmm. Spirula. Uh, or spirula. I don't know which one it would be. These yeah. are the ram squid, ram's horn squid, or a little post horns. Yes. And there, one of the they have a little internal curly Q shell. Mm-hmm. That's important for when we talk about stuff later. Uh, but they're these really weird little cephalopods that have uh, bioluminescence, which is yeah, cool. They glow. Uh huh. And so that's yeah. neat. That's something that I guess we should mention it now as a preface, but mollusks, as as we mentioned before, you think of them being shelled. Yes. And so cephalopods kind of stand out because you look at them and you say, those don't have shells. Well, (laughs) squids and cuttlefish do still have little bits of shell left over. The octopus being the most popular has gotten rid of it completely, so that's what we think of usually. Yeah. But historically and many of the modern groups still have remnants of their early shelled forms indeed uh before we move on to ancient groups i do want to just make a quick note about the modern day nautilus oh yes the nautilus so the nautilus has a special place in my heart Mm -hmm. because when i was in high school i took a a marine biology class yeah and we had a project where we were supposed to pick any sea creature and do a presentation about it Mm -hmm. And so naturally, there were a million presentations about whales and sharks. Yep. And I was like, I'm going to pick the weirdest sea creature I've never heard of, Mm -hmm. which at the time turned out to be the Nautilus. So if people don't know what a Nautilus is, the chambered Nautilus, there's about six or so species of them. Yes. Around. They are extremely rare. They are spiral shelled cephalopods with all their tentacles sticking out of their face. Mm-hmm. Uh, octopus have eight, squids have ten, uh, nautilus have up in the range of 80 or 90 or 100. <laughs> yep. Lots of them. They have the external shell, mm-hmm. which is a very 
you know, original cephalopods had these shells, yes. as we'll see. Whereas cuttlefish and squid still have shells internally, and octopus have lost them entirely or almost entirely. Nautilus, very weird. Right? They use the chambers in their shells for buoyancy to go mm-hmm. up and down. There's air chambers inside the section yep. shell. They're very strange. You know, they don't. They're not doing their color changing. Uh, they've got all those different different tentacles. They live long lives. They yeah. reproduce very slowly. They're very, very different from all the other cephalopods. They, and they are suction cups. They have little stiff tentacles that that yeah. can stick to stuff, but not without not with suction cups. Yeah, and as we'll see, part of the reason that they're so weird is because they've been separated from all the other living cephalopods almost as long as we have. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> they, that split is very, very ancient. This reminded me of one thing I want to talk with Nautilus, just because when I first read it, it just sounded crazy. Mm-hmm. So they have these air chambers in their shell that they yes. control their buoyancy with. But to do that, you have to be controlling the amount of air inside those containers. That's how ballast yes. works on submarines and so forth. Yep. The way they do this is really cool. Yeah. So the chambers... The chambered shell is called the phragmacone, mm-hmm. which is what all of them are called in all cephalopods, so yeah. that's a good term. The chambers are connected by siphuncle. Yeah, the siphuncle is like their, it's almost like their notochord, almost. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's this strand, you know, this tube of tissue that connects all the chambers. And so and it's a blood-filled tissue tube, mm-hmm. and... In the chambers, they have the ability to control the salt concentration of the blood around a chamber. Mm -hmm. And as they do this, it draws water from the chamber into the blood. And gases from the blood get released into the chamber. So they pump gas out of their blood to control the ballast in the chambers. And they they use the salt to pull... And so that's how they can empty a, a, a... you know, newly formed chamber and adjust their buoyancy, and it's really cool. Yeah, it's it's a very very neat strategy. So at this point, and th- those are a great one to start on. We can talk about the history of cephalopods. Yes, let's go way back, back to when they had shells and looked a lot like snails. Yeah, like really weird. It's, so they have <laughs> a very rich fossil history. Uh, to give you an idea, we have roughly eight hundred or so living species. Mm-hmm. That is compared to the named 17,000 fossil cephalopods. This is a point that we really need to... You know, we talk... Yes. Uh, our bias on this podcast is for vertebrate fossils. Mm-hmm. And vertebrate fossils are a big deal. They're very exciting. You know, we talked about, you know, like T-Rex. There are like 15 known skulls yep. of T-Rex, which is in- incredible for such a big rare animal what an amazing thing Inverte- marine invertebrate fossils number in the literal millions there's a reason you find them in bathroom tiles yes <laughs> there's a reason that they give them away at school events mm-hmm. shelled organisms make up the vast majority of the fossil record we've talked in two episodes now about mass extinction mm-hmm. and I, get, I think we have a tendency to imagine that 
oh, well, yeah, we discovered a mass extinction because the dinosaurs disappeared. But just about every mass extinction in the fossil record was discovered because the marine record records the shift. Yes. Events that the marine record is so astonishingly complete, Mm -hmm. so rich. I guess it's not super complete, but it's so rich in fossil remains that you record climatic shifts, continental shifts, speciation events, extinction events is all recorded in the ups and downs of marine invertebrates with shells and exoskeletons. They are the, they're not the backbone of the fossil record. They are the fossil record. Yes. Like everything else is fluff. They are so consistent that every single little bump and shift as the world changes gets recorded and is easily noticeable. Oh, yeah. There's a bunch of them. And it's the ocean. So they have... The ocean life is always more diverse there. Yeah. It also fossilizes better because water assists with fossilization. Exactly. So, so yeah, the, the, the fossil record of shelled cephalopods mm-hmm. is astounding in its diversity. We'll get into the details of that statement a little later. Because shelled fo- cephalopods have a great record. Yes, they, yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> 17,000 species of shelled Cephalopods. Yes. <laughs> so, we first see the first confirmed cephalopod in the late Cambrian. So, they came around well after the explosion, about 530 million years ago. Mm-hmm. This was Plectronosaurus cambria, and this was a you know relatively sized cephalopod. It had a very conical, like you know, cone-shaped and curved shell very large compared to its body mm-hmm. its body would have been oriented downward so it would have been wearing the shell on top not behind it it wasn't facing forward yet yeah so the, it's to picture it it would be and we'll put this on the blog but tons yeah. of pictures oh there's the so post. many cool pictures its body right that that tube of the the squid or the head quote head of the octopus would be in the shell mm-hmm. with the eyes poking out the bottom and all the tentacles dangling down yes Arms, all the arms. <laughs> it's uh, it, the funnel. They had it at this point would have been pointing backwards, so it would still have forward movement. Mm-hmm. This may have been a very benthic. It may have been, you know, I don't want to say terrestrial, but it may have been sea floor uh, in its lifestyle, and yeah. may or may not have been swimming yet. You know, it's hard to know those things specifically, but which is similar to what its closest relatives, right? Remember, these evolved within the group that is barnacles and oysters and sea snails mm-hmm. and things like that. There is uh, these one group of mollusks, we still have them today, called the monoplacophorin, and most likely was something similar to them. They're kind of like a snail. They have a single shell, but that doesn't curl, and they don't have the same snail face and body. Yeah. But it's very sim- you know, squishy, foot body on the bottom, little shell on the back is most likely what cephalopods came from. So they started with that orientation. And then their foot just split into a bunch of lots Mm -hmm. and lots of feet. They they specialized into those arms. Mm -hmm. As we move on from there into the rest of the Paleozoic, they they begin to diversify like crazy. Tons of groups. It's, It's really ridiculous. One of the big things that complicates looking at their family tree is that most fossil cephalopods are shelled for the a, a huge part of their history mm-hmm. and they all 
come to the same good ideas for their shell shapes. <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> they all keep coming. So we have multiple spiral shelled, like the Nautilus and the Ammonites that we'll mention in, in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Many straight shelled, what you'll hear called orthocones. Yes. Which is not a single group. Like it is often treated, it is a description of a shell shape because they're, we've now found they were all put in, was it orthocera? But now we've realized there are actually multiple groups that all convergently evolved this shape. Yeah, so this that, that's straight. This it's it's a weird one to picture because we don't really have anything like that today. Mm-hmm. So it I get kind of if you picture the shape of a squid, but with a shell over the torpedo, like this huge lance-like ice cream cone. Yes, and some of them got really big, big like ten feet long, big. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> like, Big, I, more than I, I, I've seen ten meters. Reported? Oh yes, no, that's right. It, it was the biggest one. Uh, I have it written down there. Endoceras mm-hmm. was ridiculously big. Uh, among the biggest, or at one point in Earth's history, one of the biggest organisms on the planet was a straight-shelled cephalopod. And so it's, we get a crazy amount of diversity here. Uh, once again, these are all things we could go on and on about. The amount of variety of shell shapes is crazy. You know, we know about the yep. famous spiral shells, because that's what you typically see, but they had ones that were hooks, some yep. curved up, some curved down, some curved off to one side. Yup. Like, they would spiral, <laughs> but then go off to the left and just keep going like a corkscrew. Yup. There were ones that looked like a uh, a cornucopia, where they would just, like, curve up and then have a little <laughs> curly cue at the end. <laughs> like, yeah. Really weird stuff. They were some that were broad and others were thin, so we got some really odd shapes for different environments. And as David said, we only have one group of shelled cephalopods today, so exactly what all of these were doing and functioning as is a really hard answer to, a really hard question to fill in. Yeah, and they were, you know, remember that these are all marine carnivores. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is a, a vast diversity of large, you know, for a marine animal, mm-hmm. swimming through the ocean column, predators dominating the seas. Absolutely. So throughout the Paleozoic, we see them just kicking butt. Oh, and yeah. it's around... Really taken off. Oh, yeah. It's around the, the Silurian-Devonian boundary, somewhere around 400, and one paper that we got a lot of our info is a really great paper that I'll post links to. Mm-hmm. is about 416 million years ago is when we see that split between the nautiloids and the coleoids. Yes, the beginning of the nautiloid rise uh, to appearance. Uh, n- uh, lack of notoriety. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they were doing great. They were doing they super were doing, great. Yeah, and and then... that's the thing is they were way more common than they are today. It It's incredible that the six or seven species of Nautilus today are the remnants of a group that dominated much of the Paleozoic. Mm-hmm. Like these were all over the... This was one of the dominant groups in the ocean. Yes. It's like this This is what you would have pulled nets up of and be like, ah, oh, crap, more of these. Straight-shelled Nautiloids, curly-shelled Nautiloids, all different, huge diversity taking over for those older groups earlier on, at the very beginning of the Paleozoic. But as David mentioned, this is still extremely early on, so they Mm -hmm. have been separate for a while, and they went down very different paths. But before we go into those 
different adaptations, one of the other big groups that showed up was Ammonites. They show up in the Devonian and kick butt until the end of the Mesozoic. Yeah, so Ammonites are very similar to the Nautilus, mm-hmm. uh, the spiral-shelled uh, for the most part. Some of them got very large. Really I think big. there were Ammonites that were 10 feet across with their spiral shells. It's really, really crazy. And they, they were around for about 300 million years. Yeah, as the Paleozoic ends and you move into the Mesozoic, right, the age of reptiles, and we talk about reptiles taking over the, mm-hmm. the land and seas and whatever. Once, As is always the case, the real action was going on <laughs> with, with invertebrates vying for control of the seas. Yes. And the ammonites really take off. They, they, they have a different shell structure than the, their nautiloid predecessors. And they are some of the most common fossils from the age of dinosaurs are these little spiral-shelled ammonites. These are, once again, much like trilobites that we've mentioned before, are really, really important for biostratigraphy and things like that because of how common they were. And so they played a really big role in things like that. Because of them as well, we see a lot of really weird predators during this time hunting ammonites because now you have these hard-shelled creatures floating around just all over the place. Yeah, and that's an interesting difference between the nautilus shell and the ammonite shell, Mm -hmm. is that the nautiloids, the structure of their shell and the placement of their their siphuncal that that Mm -hmm. delivers uh, all the blood to the different chambers, and one of the big things that helps you distinguish spiral-shelled nautilus from nautiloids from spiral-shelled ammonoids is there sutures between the chambers, and ammonoids are much more complex. Where the sections meet up. Yeah, they, yep. they have these really, and really beautiful, but really intricate suture lines. And this is something that is a pattern over the course of ammonoid evolution, that their sutures become more and more complex. And there have been studies that have suggested that this was a trade-off of... Uh, it. It's less pressure resistant mm-hmm. but provides more buoyancy control so they the structure can move their shell more accurately so they can move more accurately but living in shallower water mm-hmm. so this was a group uh, a major major group of shelled cephalopods that weren't you know today's nautilus lives very deep down yes the ammonoids were apparently living up in the shallower waters which, yes, also put them in the same environments as the predators living at that time, like ichthyosaurs and sea turtles and those marine crocs, which were all fresh on the scene. And we just talked about one that was pretty good at cracking shells. Indeed. Yes! (laughs) And there have been, uh, I believe, ammonite shells found with, like, mosasaur tooth marks. And the... Remnants of ammonites have been found in the guts of ichthyosaurs and, so and things cool. like that. Uh, and it really is a good point to make about that buoyancy control, because as cool as Nautilus, the Nautilus is, uh, if you ever mm-hmm. watch one of them move around, it's adorable. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're just bumbling around. They're so clumsy. They have to move backwards because <laughs> their funnel points forward. So they have to pump and just, t- and they don't see, they don't know where they're going. They just run into stuff all the time. <laughs> That's it's why a, that, that shell is very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Thunk. 
It's adorable. Uh, so we had a bunch of animals very much like a Nautilus, but with a vast variety and a whole separate take on the spiral shell swimming around. I was about to say running around. Swimming around. <laughs> Some octopus can run. They can chase prey they out sure of the shallows can. onto land. <laughs> and so that can happen, but these didn't. So yeah, Cambrian all the way to the Cretaceous. Mm-hmm. The, the oceans were loaded with various forms of very varied shells mm-hmm. of cephalopods. Nautiloids, ammonoids, and then there's like a bajillion extinct groups. Oh yeah, like it it's like we said, they're the spiral, the straight, the curved, all these shell forms show up multiple times in different lineages because like when we yep. talked about the snake in our snakes episode of the snake evolution, losing if losing legs is a convenient and helpful thing to do, multiple groups are gonna do it. Here, if having a curled shell is a better thing for your mm-hmm. survival then I'm going to do it too. And it makes it very hard to tease out exactly who's related to who, and it's really hard to say, oh, well, the spinny ones are this one. Nope, that's like five groups. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And so it's it's a very rich but uh, somewhat chaotic fossil history. Indeed. So we saw some really cool trends happening uh, within a lot of these groups that I think are cool. Uh, One of my favorites is the change in flotation. Yeah, because as we mentioned, the earliest cephalopods faced downward, as most likely did many of like the orthocones with the straight shells. If that's a chambered shell for flotation, but it's all the way behind you, well, then that's going to make you float straight up and down. Yeah. And so most of them were very likely floating that way where they were facing downward. They're not traveling around like a torpedo yet, like a squid. Mm hmm. But we see a trend towards slowly transitioning those flotation devices above the body so that they float face forward in a more active hunting way. And one of the most obvious versions of that is the spiral shell. Mm-hmm. If you need all your flotation device above you, the easiest way to do it is just to curl it above you. It's just to yeah. bend it <laughs> and bring it over. And then eventually that leads to you bending it into a spiral. And that was one of the reasons for that. And that's why the Nautilus can face forward. That's super cool. Which is, I, I love it. I, it's You don't even think about it because it's <laughs> they're so common, but it's a very, that spiral was a major step forward in cephalopod behavior and evolution. Yeah, there is a, a very noticeable trend all throughout cephalopod evolution of always coming up with more and more clever ways to be mobile, active yes. predators. Which, yeah, it goes back to them all being predators. They needed to be able to catch food more easily. So mm-hmm. controlling where you're facing is the first one. Yeah. The other one has to do with redesigning that shell altogether by either internalizing or reducing it. Yes, thus enter the coleoids. Yeah, so they, we mentioned they diverged a long time ago, but we start to see a lot of divergence with them earlier in like the the permian is when we first see that split between the octopus and the split group the squid groups yeah right before the age of reptiles kicks off yeah and that's where we start to see a lot of that internalization and reduction of the shell yeah what better way to be a mobile right they spent a few hundred million years 
of nautiloids and, and, and other groups going, hey, we could be more mobile if we change the shape of the shell. And then you had this colioid group shows up and go, hey, wouldn't it be better if we just didn't have a shell? I'm seeing, I'm seeing a common problem with our mobility <laughs> troubles. Yep. There's one common denominator, and I think we know the answer. <laughs> so David mentioned earlier that we think about modern cephalopods not having shells, but in fact, many of them still have remnants or internal shells. Yes. Which is very cool. And I love to uh, point it out at the aquarium because you can actually see a really nice trend between how that process happened in many groups with the modern groups. Now, that is not saying that these groups descended from one another, but you see remnants of a lot of holdovers. Right. As the different innovations were happening, different groups inherited different stages of it. Exactly. So today we have the Nautilus, fully shelled, fully chambered, spiraled, so still an advanced form of the shell, but... Still got that hard protective shell. Right. Next, we have the ram's horn squid that we mentioned earlier that has an internal actual calcium shell. It's a little spiral. Looks like yep. an ammonite shell, but it's inside the body. Yes. And so now that has gives them more control over where it's placed, but still gives them the flotation control. Mm-hmm. Next, you get to the cuttlefish, which has what's called a cuddle bone. It's yes. actually how they get their name inside the body and th- just fun fact this is what you buy at the the pet store if you're getting a calcium lick for your bird yes little cuddle bones mm-hmm. and so that is it goes along the top of their body so that's where they're able to keep that nice stiff torpedo shape is mm-hmm. it's giving them structure and giving them flotation control yeah it still has chambers mm-hmm. so they can hover they do that nice just weird alien hovercraft thing that they can do yeah Squids have reduced that down to a internal shell called a pin. It's mm-hmm. more flexible inside the body, so they can bend their... What, the mantle is what we call the back of the body. I should have mentioned that earlier when I was talking about the quote-unquote back of the head of the octopus. That mm-hmm. big bulge is called the mantle. Yeah. it lets. So now the squids can flex their mantle, so they can really do those hairpin turns and... They're really great at K-turns. They can back up one way and then zoom off another way by bending oh, that true. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see them. There's going to be so many videos in this blog post. Oh, it's it's that's all it's going to be. It's, look at this. <laughs> Whoa, did you see that? Wow. <laughs> no words. And then you finally get to the octopus, which has reduced the shell almost completely to where it has no calcification mm-hmm. inside its body. Uh, there is an animal today called the paper nautilus. Yes. Which is not a nautilus. It is an octopus that has a apparent spiral shell. Mm-hmm. But that shell is actually an egg case. It is an imposter. Yes, it's it's completely different. It just happens to form in a very similar way. It's a real it's the weirdest thing because so it's it, very it's confusing. The female paper nautilus, when she makes lays her egg, she makes this egg case she secretes and forms that has a section spiral shape, and then she hugs it and continues to swim around the open ocean. Like, it's... yeah, It looks like an inside-out Nautilus. It's so weird looking. <laughs> oh, it's super strange. <laughs> it's very odd. But you can see that transition from full shell to slowly getting rid of it. And each has its advantages. Yeah. My favorite thing I learned was that... When you get rid of the shell, like an octopus does, you still have to deal with buoyancy. 
because if they're going to jet around, they still have to try to reach neutral buoyancy, which is what the yes. shell is ideal for, is you can reach it so that you're not floating up and you're not sinking down, you're just hovering. Mm-hmm. And the way they do it is by secreting low-density aqueous solutions into the body tissues, which for octopus is sulfate. And huh. in many deca brackets is ammonia. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> so they just put ammonia into their bodies yeah. to help lighten and change the buoyancy of their fluids? Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> Because they're aliens. Because <laughs> they're, because they're crazy. Oh, I mean, the idea of there being an advanced civilization of cephalopods, and them going in like Doctor, I, I'm just I'm 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 floating left and right. I don't know what's going on. It looks like your ammonia levels are off. Don't worry, we'll get you. We'll get you an ammonia shot. You'll have to. You'll have to test yourself. <laughs> you have to take this twice a day. <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's there's a whole another side thing I have on a documentary I saw where they have seen some cephalopods start to not ha- not be social with each other but be forced to group because their environment their their ecosystem is being reduced due to tourism. But yeah, naturally. They're now having to see they're now seeing multiple octopus uh octopodes hiding in the same, you know, shelter. Ooh, interesting. Which one of the interesting thing about cephalopods is that most are short-lived, especially octopus. Oh yeah, short-lived and super high reproduction. And very high reproduction. The octopus takes this the step further for being weird because they are antisocial, mm-hmm. which is very odd for a highly intelligent animal. Yeah. It means they're excellent at problem solving and they're highly instinctual at the same time. Yes. So they know how to hunt from birth, but they are problem solver so whenever you see an octopus doing something clever it either watched another one do it without the other one's permission or (laughs) figured it out itself because they don't care for their young because the mother and father die after reproduction for the male and egg laying for the female yeah so they have no parental care but if we get these societies of octopus that are living near each other we can have generations living next to each other which means we could get learning from one another, which is how you get Atlantis. Yes. <laughs> so keep stay tuned for super intelligent cephalopods. I'm so excited. Coming soon to a coastal invasion. <laughs> to a dystopian future near you. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the interesting things about these differences mm-hmm. between these animals, right? So you've got your nautiloids with your... You know, starting out with all different groups with your straight shells, moving into your spiral shells, moving into your mobile buoyant spiral shells, moving into things like squids and you know cuttlefish with chambered internal shells mm-hmm. to squids with unchambered internal shells to octopus with no shells whatsoever. A lot of we should actually real quick we should mention that another chambered shelled internal yes group the belemnites super super common. Throughout the Mesozoic. Mm-hmm. They had an uh, internal shell, chambered, mm-hmm. that was broken up into three parts, which I think is very interesting because they had a portion that went more toward the front of the body, the chambered mid portion, and then mm-hmm. something co- that they often call a rostrum that is this like pin cap plug on the end mm-hmm. that, at least in fossilization, now some people have said that maybe the fossilization process causes this, but it's very dense and hard. 
Interesting. And what they're using that for is unknown. Some people think it may have been the basis for fins like a squid has. Yeah. Or it may have been, oh, this is a cool one, a wave cutter, so that if they were at the surface, they could oh, use that to cool. cut into the waves as they came in. But it had this little Interesting. point at the tip that was constructed differently than the chambered portion, which is, who who knows what it was doing with that? Sword fighting. <laughs> fighting off mosasaurs. They would jet themselves in the and eyes. stick in like darts. <laughs> <laughs> These are, um, so if... The, the two cephalopod fossils you tend to find from the Mesozoic are the spirals of the ammonites or the torpedo, the bullets, the little bullet shapes of belemnites. Yes. Super, super common. Uh, very squid-like. They didn't have the tentacles. Yeah. They had arms. They had a thick chambered skull. Or yeah, shell. Skull. <laughs> uh, a thick chambered shell they had, they that they had were using to get skeleton. around. They were really weird. Yeah. <laughs> but what I was going to say is one of the weirdest dichotomies is the rep the only representative we have of those ancient shelled cephalopods mm-hmm. are the handful of nautilus species today yes and it's tempting to assume that ancient nautiloids and ammonoids were living much like today's nautilus but today's nautilus has been separated from those ancestors for tens to hundreds of millions of years including the ammonites like yeah those are not you know even though they're similar they are not nestled with each other separate group so it's really hard to tell so we don't know if the nautilus today is a good representation of those ancient groups or if it's the weirdo that managed to make it to today (laughs) where the old ones they're gonna be looking for guys like you (laughs) you're all stupid (laughs) you're all dressed like army army so was the you know, today's Nautilus reproduces really slowly, lives a long time. Were the old ones like that? We don't know. I said old ones. Another Cthulhu reference. A hidden uh-huh. reference. By the end of this podcast, we will summon him. <laughs> <laughs> you say Cthulhu's name three times and he appears. <laughs> You're just going to hear a horrible scream and the podcast will go silent. <laughs> but then the, the file never ends. <laughs> That's it. It just goes on forever. Even it manages to get uploaded somehow. Yeah. No, you like you will turn your 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 phone off. It'll still be going. <laughs> <laughs> so, almost all of our information about nautiloids, including the modern ones, comes from the past. Yes. And almost all of our information about coleoids, despite the fact that they've been around for 300 million years, comes from the present because one of the side effects of losing your shell is that you no longer become an abundant, phenomenal, fossilizable creature. That was their plan all along. To hide from the fossil record. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like we're being watched. We need to go incognito. No one will know we were ever here. And that is one of the big issues, is the vast majority of cephalopods a day are the coleoids, and yet we do not have many fossils from them because they are... About as soft as you can get. Yeah, an octopus, like the only hard part of an octopus typically is either the beak mm-hmm. or sometimes the little hooks Yeah, if they have them on the, the arms. Mm-hmm. So that, that makes it very tricky to really track their family history. Mm-hmm. But we do get fossils every now and then. Yeah, some really, really cool ones. Oh, and that's when we do get coleoid fossils... You know, or or soft-bodied coleoid fossils, 
we it is when they are exceptional preservation sites. Yes, you don't get like by it has to be exceptional. Mm-hmm. So you get the the rare few that we have are gorgeous. Yeah, it's really cool, and there's there's some amazing pictures where you can see the whole the mantle, the arms, and it's really impressive. So the the oldest octopus is one of these, and it showed up about 296 million years ago. So wow, Permian about 300 years ago, yeah. 300 million years ago. Uh, I'm not even gonna try to say the name because it. It has too many consonants. Uh, <laughs> What's the what is it? Spell it. But it's Pulsepia, I think, is how you would say. It, but it's P O H L S E P I A. Pulsepia is what I. Pulsepia. Yeah, that's that's Pulsepia. Pulsepia. But it has eight arms, two eyes, and possibly an ink sac. That's how well this one is fossilized. Yeah. And that's the oldest known one. So they've been soft-bodied for that long. Mm-hmm. But we only have a few remnants of them, so they've been doing all the crazy stuff. Uh, we just didn't get to see it the same way as everyone else. Yeah, we'll we'll put some of these links and pictures on the mm-hmm. blog post so you can see that it's like a, a smushed impression of an octopus. Yeah. Arms out all over the place. Looks like something you'd see at a, a sushi diner. Yes, <laughs> and, it, and it's swished in there like a fossil leaf mm-hmm. or, or a footprint. Uh, it's just the whole body of an octopus. Which is it's just especially funny because they they can squish like that. So like, yeah, I love the impression that it's like no, this thing was like half the size. <laughs> <laughs> it's just been flattened out like a a piece of play doh. Well, that's an, another reason why octopus. Another benefit of losing the shell is that they're super plastic. They can squeeze into tiny spaces. You can find all sorts of videos. The beak is the the main hard part of the body. And as long as an opening is bigger than that beak, effectively the entire octopus can fit through it. Yeah. Even if it's a tube. <laughs> yup. That's my... Fi- watching them travel down a tube, you just see suction cups everywhere. Yeah. And there are... I, I found a, an, an article from a few years ago of a discovery of some beak fossils, which mm-hmm. are not, not super uncommon. Yeah. But there, have, there, there was an article that came out a few years ago of what appear to be giant beaks from some sort that look a lot like squid. Oh. And they appear to be giant squid beaks. That's awesome. From the fossil record. And there are, there's at least one example, I think there's there's actually quite a few of these, of fossils with ink sacs mm-hmm. preserved with remnants of the ink. Oh. And indeed, the one of the guys who is one of the big names in in determine in, in looking at uh, dinosaur color mm-hmm. by examining fossil pigment remnants, uh, Jakob Winter, I believe he started by looking at melanosomes preserved in squid ink in the fossil record, and that was sort of where he got familiar with the remnants of those pigment molecules and then started looking at other creatures that might have left them behind. That's really interesting. And so there have been some studies on squid ink from the fossil record that have found that it's extraordinarily similar to modern-day ink because, right, all coleoids today, Mm -hmm. right, squid, cuttlefish, octopus, ink, which means that that capability has been around for at least as as early as that 
Permian octopus. Yeah. This is a, a very early, a trait that evolved very early on. They got complex early on, and, you know, we can't say whether or not they stayed, how much they changed from there, since we don't have a lot, but mm -hmm. the fact that they were, you know, had all these seemingly complex features that early on is really interesting. You know, they they were yeah. adapting very quickly, and it's, the ink sack is especially cool, because for anyone who doesn't know, that is one of their main defensive weapons against predators. Yes. They can use the ink in a couple of different ways. They can either do a big cloud, like a smoke screen, mm -hmm. to hopefully blur the vision of their predator and be able to get out in the chaos. Right, like Batman. Yeah, exactly. They they puff it out. It's mucusy, <laughs> so it, it, it hangs in the water Gross. and gets really... Yeah. It can mess with their sense of smell. They also have the ability to do little, not smoke bombs, but like little smoke darts. Like a loogie? Yeah, like a loogie. They will shoot these little jets of ink off in one direction while they go off in the other as like, as we think, a decoy. What? Also like that, man. Yes. And so they'll <laughs> send this off and hopefully it gives you a 50-50 chance that the predator goes for the wrong one and you what? escape. I know squids can do that. I think octopus That's can as well. Cool. It's so incredible to think about, right? Because you hit this point, right, where th this one entire major branch of cephalopods just disappears from the fossil record because mm -hmm. they got squishy. They lost their protective shells. They became mobile. They're competing now with fish, right? Because, you know, that, that you've got this, now they're all swimming in the open water column, active predators competing on the level of small sharks and, mm -hmm. and, and predatory fish. You know, trying to keep up, you know, uh, with with all the other predators of the sea, it's incredible to think about, because there are things we do not have the ability to detect in the fossil record now, maybe ever. Yeah. Such as camouflage. Yep. Were they color changing? Because cuttlefish can do it, an octopus can do it, which is a good suggestion that this was present as far back as the Permian. Mm-hmm. Octopus, right? Have there been mimic octopuses for 300 million years? Pretending to be ammonites and <laughs> ichthyosaurs. Yeah. And if you had these, right, if, if at some point you had social groupings of octopo octopodes, or mm -hmm. if you had super bizarre, like, all of this is hidden. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's one of those things, like, what could be hidden is impressive, because the largest ones today, when it comes to cephalopods, are going to be the giant and colossal squid, mm -hmm. which their size ranges are, are pretty ridiculous, because the ones we found, because we have finally found them alive, but they're yep. typically, like, 20 feet long, but there have been specimens washed up on beach and found in the stomachs of whales that are, like, 60 or 90 feet, like, like crazy huge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, that's from tip of the mantle to tip of the tentacle the so that's tentacle yeah. yeah but still like they have the biggest eye of any animal yeah i'm just hanging out down at the bottom of the sea where we can't see them 13 meters is the maximum estimate so 43 feet which is still wow. ridiculous for octopus the biggest one today is the giant pacific which can get up to be like over 10 feet long. Mm -hmm. We don't know what allows them to get that long because we keep those in aquariums all the time. Yeah. And they don't usually get that big. And they usually only still live the like four or five years that octopus are often, octopuses are often known to live. 
So we don't know if those big ones are living longer or growing faster or... So you get these weird things. Who knows what there was in the fossil record? Yeah. There could be some true krakens that were Absolutely. existing back then that were really terrifying to behold, but we may never know. <laughs> it's it's it, the 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 story of the inverter of uh, the cephalopod fossil record is so interesting because half of the story is insane iconic diversity and the other half of the story is a big frustrating question mark they really are like you made the com- comparison a couple of times they really are batman they were around <laughs> and then things started to get crazy as everyone diversified and they went they disappeared they went off and all of a sudden they showed back up with all of these crazy gadgets and abilities <laughs> and yeah. they just started kicking butt as this yeah, is stealth mode we are in nowadays the batman begins of the coleoids <laughs> well, and it's it's interesting because cephalopods, right? So, ammonites and belemnites disappeared at the end of the Mesozoic. Mm-hmm. The end Cretaceous extinction took them out. You know, they, they, there's evidence that they were in decline already. Mm-hmm. Did not make it past the end Cretaceous extinction. Nautiloids much reduced, and by today, you know, you've got the barest, tiny little sliver of of species remaining. Which, let's be honest, in the current world, are probably not going to make it very much longer. Yep. And you have octopus and squid and cuttlefish. This is a, a gr- cephalopods are a group that was were once much much more diverse mm-hmm. and much much more dominant than they are today. They're still super cool. Yeah, they they are what we have today is the weird remnants. Of a of a very varied legacy, yeah, a, a dynasty that was once here. Uh, you mentioning that you know what's left today. You know, we mentioned there's about 800 living species. One article I was reading compared that to the fact that there's like 30,000 living species of fish. Oh like yeah, bony fish. And so this seems like they are getting beat out. But they make the point that if you look at the productivity rates, cephalopods are still holding their own. Yes, because. Like we said, they make a lot of babies. and Yeah, they do. I found a cool thing talking about that this actually causes an interesting thing in their evolution. Because they grow fast and reproduce very quickly, you know, just within a few years, they're one of the fastest, fastest growing animals on the planet. Mm-hmm. They, when they're born, they're about the size of your thumbnail, if yeah, not most smaller. Most of the coleoids are born with in little larval stages. Yep. In three, in like four or five years, they will have died of old age for yes. most <laughs> most octopus species, and for like the giant Pacific. Once again, think size of your fingernail, up to easily the ones we've had at the aquarium. We've had uh, two now since I've been there, and mm-hmm. both of them, the one was over three feet long. The one we have now is reaching three feet long easily. Yeah, that's a ridiculous amount of growth in just a few years mm-hmm. and they do it fast. Like I've n- yeah. been able to notice him be bigger since he's gotten there and he's only been here a few months. Yeah. So they're very fast growing and this leads to something called our selection or a weed like life history where yes. they can repopulate a lot faster than other things. So if they, and, and the, they make the comparison that if you were to, burn down or cut down an oak forest, oak trees aren't the first thing that shows up. The weeds are. Yes. And so because of this, cephalopods are able to 
repopulate really fast because by the time they've had a clutch in four years, they're having another clutch. Yeah. All the ones that survived have already reproduced again. Yeah. Our selection, and now we're into ecology, very popular among, especially in the ocean, it's a great place to have lots and lots of babies Mm -hmm. because most of them aren't going to make it. Yep. So you reproduce fast, you have a lot. Uh, Whenever I see roaches in the apartment, I curse them for being R selected. <laughs> I go because I can't. I no matter how many of you I throw in the trash, there's a million of you left. It'll just make them better. In fact, that same. I think we're looking at the same article because I actually copied a quote from the end of that article that I would love to read. This is from Payne et al. 1998, and they said, "In some ways, cephalopods have not matched the sophisticated physiology and swimming biomechanics of fish. In other ways." Fish have not matched the elaborate mechanisms of cephalopods for capturing and handling prey, nor have fish matched the rapid, complex concealment devices of cephalopods. So fish maybe may seem to have the upper fin these days, but they are not Cthulhu-grabbing their prey, Mm-mm. and then disappearing into the shadows like cephalopods are. It's very few animals that can as easily take on a crab or a small shark like large octopus, like a large octopus could. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. As we said at the beginning, and as we often say in our episodes, we could go forever talking about this subject. If there's a group of cephalopods we mentioned that you think is really cool and you want to hear more about, we could do a whole episode about it. Let us know. Please let us know, because I'd love to do another one on on one of these groups, or even one of the modern groups, if you want to know as much as we know about them and as much as their fossil history, because they're so... Indeed. But with that, we're going to wrap things up as usual. If you have any episode ideas or questions or comments or things you'd like to let us know you can contact us on facebook twitter we have our wordpress blog we Mm -hmm. have the podbean that you can follow us and comment on as well yeah we have comments on itunes yes contact us at common descent podcast at gmail.com proof that we actually listen to your suggestions big thanks to both lucas and hans For suggesting that we do Cephalopod episode, which was a lot of fun for us. Lucas made his initial one early on, but then they both, within about a week of each other, asked us to do the Cephalopods, which was like, well, all right then. (laughs) I I suppose we're going to do that. (laughs) And as usual, feel free to check out our Patreon. We would love to have your support. It lets us do more of what we're doing and hopefully Mm -hmm. keep doing it forever and ever which is the dream. It's a good dream. As is always the case, we release new episodes every fortnight. Mm -hmm. So keep an eye out one fortnight from the release of this episode for the next episode as we explore something else. Thanks for listening, everyone. Stay safe. Watch out for the cephalopod uprising. Yes. (laughs) Thanks very much. We'll see you next time. Cthulhu, Cthulhu, Cthulhu. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. 
For more from us, you can follow us on the Common Descent Podcast Twitter account, Facebook page, or on our WordPress blog, where we post additional cool stuff for each episode. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome. You can find this and other video game remix music at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope to see you next time. Thank you.